Hello, my name is Will Nicholson, and today I'll be doing a podcast on why Yasukuni matters. For over 150 years, the Yasukuni Shrine in Japan has been operating. Over its life, millions of soldiers and other important military figures have been enshrined at this site. This number, surprisingly, contains over 1,068 war criminals from the Sino-Japanese War, a theater of World War II. Among these war criminals, 14 have been tried and designated Class A by international organizations, the highest offense that can be given. In an ironic twist, the name Yasukuni is comprised of two kanji in Japanese. These mean peaceful country when directly translated into English. So what exactly did Japan do to abandon this title of peaceful country, and why is Yasukuni such a controversial topic in today's politics? To answer this question, we'll discuss events in China during the Sino-Japanese War, and we'll also cover the history of Japanese colonization of Korea. To begin, we'll discuss events in China during the Sino-Japanese War. On December 13, 1937, Japan fully invaded Nanjing. Before we discuss this, why did Japan invade China in the first place? Well, in July of 1937, around 2,200 Japanese soldiers were doing military exercises outside of Wanping. After these exercises, a roll call was given and the Japanese realized that one soldier was missing. Convinced that he had been taken into the Chinese-controlled city for unknown reasons, the Japanese military demanded entry to confirm that he was not there. Chinese officials declined and thus Japan issued an ultimatum with artillery on standby if their demands were not met. Seeing how I'm now speaking about this incident, the outcome is obvious. The Chinese refused to give in to the ultimatum and Japan followed through and attacked. Guo Jingjing was 9 years old when the war broke out. He remembered seeing troves of planes flying above his village and he knew that something wasn't right. Months later in the summer of 1938, he recalled 20 Japanese battleships sailing down the Juyun River in China at 2pm. By 5pm, cannons were firing in the distance. War had begun. Four days after this, bodies began floating down the Jiyun River in burlap saps and would continue to go by for weeks. Unbeknownst to him at the time, countless other tragedies and offenses were being carried out by the Japanese in other regions of his country, all while this was happening. One such incident was in Nanjing. The Nanjing Massacre, also known as the Rape of Nanjing, is arguably the most heinous act committed by Japan during the war. In just hours, Japanese forces had stormed and taken control of the entire city. During their six-week occupation, many war crimes were committed. Chinese estimates now confirm anywhere between 200 to 300,000 civilian casualties. Other estimates tell that 20,000 to 40,000 women were raped by Japanese soldiers during this period. To this day, many people in Japan deny that these events ever occurred, but the facts are irrefutable. Now 85-year-old Chi Shuchin was just a child living in Nanjing during the chaos. Japanese soldiers beat her mother to death and the neighbor's mother to death. They also stabbed Shia three times while she was just eight years old. Only she and her sister survived out of the nine siblings there that day. They continued to hide for days but would rarely reveal themselves to find food. After six weeks of hiding and once the Japanese had left, her uncle found her and brought her to a safe zone for the survivors. The safe zone was created by German national John Roby and was comparable in size to Central Park. While the Japanese were in Nanjing, certain, certain members of the military decided to hold a competition of sorts. Whoever killed the most people, civilians included, won the competition. The competition quickly had two contenders for first. One had 105 confirmed kills, and the other 106. Seeing how no one knew who reached 100 first, they extended it to 150. The actions of Japan and the city are unacceptable. However, they do not end their transgressions here. They continued throughout the war and in Korea, which we'll discuss further in this podcast. Once Nanjing had fallen, though, the Chinese government went west to Chongqing. 
So what now was Japan's plan for the invasion? They wished to invade China from the north and also cut off Beijing from the south. This would lead to control of eastern China, which was more fertile than the other regions. These areas also hold the greatest economic and cultural significance and are where the majority of Chinese population resided. Japan believed this would put China in a tough situation where they might possibly surrender. However, the nationalist leader of China made a risk to try and protect his citizens. In July of 1937, shortly after the invasion, the leader sought to reunify China, and Mao Zedong agreed with him. China knew that to win, they simply had to outlast Japan's willingness to stay. The communist leader Mao Zedong and Chiang Kai-shek came to an agreement where each party would have their own militaries but would fight united. Thus, many Red Armies were formed to counter the Japanese. The first large battle fought by these armies would be in Shanghai. Shanghai was next on the list as Japan moved south. However, China decided to stay and fight to try and make Japan even more willing to leave. Chiang Kai-shek and Mao Zedong worked together to fight tooth and nail in this battle. They could not allow Japan to take more than Manchuria, Beijing, and Tianjin. The first battle fought in Shanghai was at Peach Hotel, and around 1,000 people were killed. Another one in battle was in the Shang warehouses. Here, Xi Jinping recalls his father's war stories. Along with 800 men, his father was tasked with defending the warehouse in Shanghai to allow for a retreat to a new line of defense. They sealed off all the doors with sandbags and sealed off half of each window. Two soldiers were also placed beside each window, and they all fired at once under the command of Xi's father. Although called the 800-man regiment, only 400 men were truly in it. They spread false information about their numbers in hopes of scaring off the Japanese. However, in the waters nearby, Wang Zhang tells a story of the horrific mistakes made by the Chinese pilots. On August 14th, one day into the battle, Chinese fighter planes were sent to bomb Japanese flagships. However, the flagships fired back and the planes lost balance when they were hit. To counter this new imbalance, the Chinese pilots began to drop their bombs to lighten their load. This caused the bombs to drop near a refugee camp, and thousands died following this action. Although this was a great morale drop for the Chinese, they continued to fight for three months into November, outlasting the Japan Japanese estimates for taking control of the entire country in just one battle. The Japanese suffered many losses in Shanghai, but they overcame them nonetheless. Following this battle, they began to push towards Taizhuang. To successfully control the remainder of China, Japan had to take the Zhuzhou Railway's junction near Taizhuang. Without this junction, Japan would not be able to hold Beijing, Nanjing, or go further west towards Wuhan. The city structure gave the Chinese an advantage and caused them to turn to hand-to-hand -hand fighting in the narrow streets. The Expandables, a small fighting force in China, infiltrated various parts of the Japanese-controlled lands to cause guerrilla warfare against the superior enemy. Ren Shigan tells their story. There were 57 Chinese soldiers who formed the Expandables and fought with swords against the Japanese and claimed many small victories. Commander Qi, their leader, hoped his subordinates would be loyal and sacrifice themselves to defend Taizhuang. Only 13 of the original group survived the war, and none are known to be alive today. Shigan also shines light on the nearly 5,000 civilians murdered in this battle and the countless rapes and beatings committed by the Japanese soldiers pushing through the city. Another survivor of Taizhuang was Li Jingsheng, who is now 82 years old. Children would watch planes fly by, and neither they nor the older generations knew what they were. Only when bombs began to fly and explosions were heard did the people understand that it was a danger. Li and his family fled away from the city, only bringing a cart of their belongings. He wanted to stay in his home, but fleeing was the only safe option. When Li returned to the city, everything was scorched black and destroyed. He recalled that even when it rained, the blood of the dead would come up out of the ground and cover everything. The final event of the Sino-Japanese War I'll cover is the Yellow River Incident. 
Although Japan had lost in Taiji Ruang, they continued their invasion deeper into China, leading to this major travesty. At 5,464 kilometers long, the Yellow River is China's mother river. Now it is sometimes known as China's sorrow. Lu Haiyong, a recognized researcher on this topic, studied the impact the Yellow River had on the war. The dikes along the river were breached on June 9, 1938. This was a very hard decision that had to be made to slow Japan's army. After suffering countless defeats across China, Chinese leaders had to blow them. Japanese tanks, cavalry, and artillery were all flooded and seized by the Chinese National Army. However, this decision also led to issues for millions of residents along the river. At least 800,000 Chinese died directly from this act, and 4.8 million became refugees. Famine also ensued. Around 100 million Chinese became refugees during the war. Before I conclude this section on Japanese involvement in China, I must first include Shiro Ishii, commander of Unit 731. Shiro was a doctor who became the Japanese Surgeon General in 1932. A doctor's God-given mission, Ishii said, was to block and treat disease, but the work upon which we are now about to embark, he said, is the complete opposite of these principles. Over the next few years, he would relocate his laboratory three times, one even at a prison camp. He constructed his final camp in 1940, which would house approximately 3,000 personnel. Over the next five years, he made countless concoctions of various medications, diseases, and other items and gave them primarily to Chinese prisoner of wars, but also to some allied prisoners. He also purposely gave the prisoners disease to examine their effect on the human bodies. Some of these were anthrax, plague, and smallpox. Ishii died in 1959 a free man. Why was he free, you ask? Well, the US military bargained with him and Ishii, knowing that the Soviets would also interrogate him, not as professionally, so to speak, made a deal with the Americans. These terms were simple. Ishii would give all information he found from his human experiments, which turned out not to be a lot, in exchange for full and total immunity from the war crimes committed. Overall, the Sino-Japanese War was a travesty. Japan gained nothing, and China lost almost everything. War has no winners, and this one definitely didn't. With the countless war crimes and other morally wrong acts committed by the Japanese, the question remains. Why does Japan still hold on so tightly to Yasukuni? Many believe that it's similar to Confederate memorials in the United States today. Although they directly represent memorials of bad people, some believe that they should say to remind us of our history. Some Japanese feel this way about Yasukuni, but some also feel differently. There's a group of nationalists in the country that believe it should be kept because it is something to be proud of. The countless soldiers that fought for the goodness, so to speak, of Japan should be enshrined forever no matter what anyone else says. Although this stance is understandable by some, it's disingenuous to allow those who wronged so many to continually be memorialized as idols. As many of these actions were taking place in China, many were also occurring in Korea. Lee Sun was 14 years old and out doing chores for her parents when out of the blue the Japanese soldiers kidnapped her and took her to become a quote-unquote comfort woman. What is a comfort woman, you ask? This is a term used to describe the nearly 200,000 women from 1932 to 1945 in Korea that the Japanese took and forced to work in state-owned brothels. An estimated 90% of comfort women died before the war ended. Some believed it was to cover up the Japanese involvement. It's already near impossible to find records of the events due to the Japanese campaigns to destroy them. Any remaining records are kept under lock and key by the government too, making cases against the Japanese nearly impossible. However, recently, a South Korean case was argued and won by the victims of the war despite insurmountable odds. Aaron Blakeman wrote that it was not a place for humans, Lee told Dutch Schwell in 2013. Like other women, she was threatened and beaten by her captors. There was no rest, recalled Maria Rosa Henson, a Filipino woman who was forced into prostitution in 1943. They had sex with me every minute, she said. 
Just as the Americans didn't handle the situation with seven, Unit 731 well, they also handled this very poorly. After the conclusion of the war, the brothels were not shut down by the US, but continued to operate until 1946 when General Douglas MacArthur shut them down. However, he was too late. Liberal estimates show that nearly 410,000 were women were comfort women in this period and around 125 different state-owned brothels. In 1993, Japan took a step in the correct direction and acknowledged the existence of these comfort stations. In 2015, they agreed to give reparations to remaining South Korean survivors, although almost none are still alive. Due to this, South Korea insisted on a stronger apology, but Japan condemned the idea. Yung So Lee, one of the few remaining survivors, gave her thoughts on the situation when she turned 90. I never wanted to give comfort to those men, she told the Washington Post. I don't want to hate or hold a grudge, but I can never forgive what happened to me. Even though strong testimony exists and the evidence confirms these events happened, action still hasn't been taken in Yasukuni to remove the remains of these perpetrators. Recently, along with Yasukuni, new movements have begun to ship the government of all and all officials of the Rising Sun flag. Along with all the injustices still enshrined at Yasukuni, many also see the flag as carrying on these war crimes in a proud way. Every ship in the Japanese Navy today flies one, and many other important Japanese officials also utilize them. A lot of people compare this flag to the Nazi flag used in Germany during the same era, a comparison I've begun to shift towards aligning with recently. Defenders of the flag point towards its continued use before Japan had any nationalist ideology in mass and believe that it shouldn't have to go simply because it was briefly associated with something terrible. However, those who think the opposite draw links between the specific Rising Sun flag with the 16 red and yellow stripes to the Confederate flag in the United States and the Nazi flag in Germany, as mentioned before. Along with Yasukuni and the specific flag, there are many options and choices on the table, and assuredly there are also other controversial top topics in Japan, like the Dokdo Islands, but covering all these issues would take much more time than we have available. Now we'll shift towards the modern era of these war crimes, Yasukuni. All of these events led to countless people dying either directly from the war or from the ripples it caused. Many people today still remember the atrocities committed by the Japan by Japanese in China. Many were also in Korea. This cemetery, which is more like a memorial, enshrines many who committed terrible acts during the invasion and as such can, carries a massive public outcry against it. A Japanese blog site gives a brief history as follows. The history of the Yasukuni Shrine as an enshrinement for the war dead extends all the way back to its establishment in 1869. Souls from conflicts such as the Boshin War, Sino-Japanese, and Russo-Japanese, amongst others, have found their resting place within the grounds. However, it is the enshrinement of 1,068 World War II war criminals, specifically the 14 Class A criminals in 1978, as mentioned before, that had made Yasukuni and the visits to it by senior politicians the focus of domestic and international scrutiny. Many different political figures have different views on this quote-unquote shrine. Juichiro Kozumi, Prime Minister between 2001 and 2006, promised the electorate that he would make annual visits to the shrine. However, Yasu Fukuda, from Prime Minister from 2007 to 2008, refused to even visit it. Some even questioned the constitutionality of official visits to the shrine. Frank Ravitch, in an essay on this exact issue, explained that the Osaka High Court found official prime ministerial visits to be unconstitutional under Articles 20 and 89 of the Japanese Constitution. Seeing how the shrine has transitioned from a state-owned institution to a private one that receives no public funding, the options are difficult. There have been many different solutions proposed. These range from an all-out demolition of the shrine to relocating the war criminals to a different area. However, some believe that the shrine ought to be uprooted and forgotten. The History Museum of the Shrine fails to mention any war crimes committed by those in shrines another cause for public dissent. There's no doubt that action needs to be taken on the matter of the shrine, but the only question is, what is this action? Personally, I believe that the shrine should have all war criminals, no matter which level, removed and relocated. 
I also believe the Japanese must recognize their actions in past wars. Even though they themselves did not commit these injustices, many still deny their existence, ignoring the pain of the survivors and their families. The histories of China, Korea, and Japan have a long and intricate past. Any action taken by one country could cause issues that could de destabilize the entire region. So what exactly did Japan do to abandon the title of peaceful country, and why is Yasukuni such a controversial topic in today's politics? Well, when presented with the historical and modern evidence, it's obvious. Countless murders, rapes, lootings, and other horrific acts led to the, pro led to the geopolitical implications Japan must deal with today. It's been a pleasure to have you with us today. My name is Will Nicholson, and I hope today that you learned something new.